Good morning. We're thrilled that you come out to be with us, to worship with us this morning. We're thrilled to have you with us. And I know that God is, is pleased that you've come out to worship Him, to obey His will this morning. Before we get started on the, the main lesson, I want you to use your imagination for a few minutes. I want to take you back in time. I want you to imagine that you're living in the first century. You're a young man who was born around 10 or 12 A.D. You were born in the uh, province of uh, Cilicia. Your parents are Jews, very strict Jews. They're Pharisees from the tribe of Benjamin. So all you know is the way that you're raised. Your religion is your parents' religion. You're raised a very strict Jew. They're so strict that somewhere around the age of 12 or 13, you're sent to Jerusalem to finish your education. There you're educated under what we would call one of the great professors. He was a doctor of the law. You're educated in the Jewish way of life. You're educated in the Jewish law because that's all you know. So you've got the best education. This, this professor that you're learning from, this, this schooling that you're getting, He's a member of the, the great Sanhedrin council, the Jewish council. So you're around there. The next eight or ten years of your life, you're around this council. And although you're not a member, you know them all. You, you see what they're talking about. You understand what's going on. You've kind of got an inside look at what's going on around Jerusalem. So you're aware of all the things that's happening. You're aware when you hear of this lunatic out in the wilderness, wearing camel skins and eating locusts and wild honey. And you're aware when he's beheaded. You hear of another one that comes forward, and, and this guy claims to be the Christ, the Son of God. And you hear how the problems he's causing, the things he's doing against your religion. So what do you do? What do you do to protect your religion? You're still a young man. What can you do? Well, the Jews do what they usually do in cases like this. They put Him to death. They crucified the Christ. So that should be the end of it. So you're aware of all this, although you're still young, you're not really a part of it, but you're reaching manhood now. And so this dies out, and the, the great multitudes that were following this, this phony, this, this person who claimed to be the Christ... They've went from thousands down to just 120 mere disciples. But then the day of Pentecost comes. Now you've got these apostles that stand up on the day of Pentecost and look what they've done. 3,000 people have come back together and have joined this faith, this way of life. And, and you just cringe inside. You're so mad because they take one of our Jewish holidays and they use it to start this church. And so you're aware of all this going on. You spend a lot of time around the temple, so you'd know when Peter and John come in and they heal the lame man. And what does that do? That stirs up another big multitude. But everyone saw what they did. They're performing some kind of miracles. But my religion is right, not theirs, so their miracles must be of the devil. They can't be of God. What do we do about this? How do we stop this? You're around the council when they pull Peter and John in and they stand before the council and they threaten them and they tell them, do not teach in this man's name anymore. 
And you see all that, but it, it doesn't do any good. You hear Peter say those bold words, we must obey God rather than man. Do you see all this going on? A little while later, the multitude grows and grows, and we're up in tens of thousands of those who they are called followers, or those of the way, or of this way. Those who are disciples of Christ. We thought when we crucified this Christ, we would kill this movement, but it started back up again. What do we do to stop this? How can we stop this? You're aware of a young man named Stephen who is out preaching and, and working miracles, and you're in the council, you're there at the council, not a member, but you're there with them when they drag Stephen in, and you hear the testimony that's given against him. You probably don't know that it's false testimony. You probably don't know that he really didn't blaspheme against God, but you hear it, and you're as angry as everyone in the council as Stephen stands up and he gives his speech. And you're there when they drag Stephen out and they stone him. Now, you didn't throw a stone, but you liked it. And the young man I'm talking about in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, is introduced to us as Saul. It says Saul stood there and he held the coats of those who stoned Stephen. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. He liked it. He liked it. You see, now there's an answer. Now we've got a way to stop this cult, this false religion that's coming in and trying to take my Jewish way of life. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says there was a great persecution now that Saul was breathing out threatenings and slaughter. And we know the story. We know what Saul did. He was going into houses and dragging people out and putting them in prison and putting them to death. This morning I want to talk a little bit about the conversion of Saul. But I want to look at this in a way that you may not have looked at it before. The title of this lesson is What's Your Excuse? Because if you have an excuse for not becoming a Christian, I promise you it's not as good as all the excuses Saul had. I want you to look at the excuses that Saul could have used and how he got by these. In Acts chapter 9, if you would turn your Bibles with me there. The conversion of Saul is, is listed three times in the New Testament. We're going to look at Acts chapter 9, starting with verse 1. I'm going to read the first eight verses. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest. And he desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogue, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth. And he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul rose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. 
But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Saul, ancestry was a Jew. That was his parents' religion. That was the religion that he was brought up in. He had the best education you could possibly have from Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee, the strictest sect of the religions. But the church he persecuted, he was converted to a Christian, and he dedicated his life to Christ. So the first point is, ancestry means nothing in spiritual matters. The religion of my parents means nothing in spiritual matters. Saul said, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God as ye are this day. He was a descendant of Abraham. He didn't think he had to do anything else. This was his parents' religion. This is all he needed. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter goes to the, uh, goes to the house of Cornelius, he makes this statement. Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. So, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what religion your family is. It doesn't matter where you are brought in from because God is no respecter of persons. Anyone who believes and obeys is acceptable. Having a great teacher would not necessarily save us. We looked at this verse here. He was brought up in this city, Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel. He had one of the greatest teachers you could possibly have. In Acts chapter 5, verse 34, it says, Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among the people. He had the best education you could possibly have. So many out there in the world today can go to some of the best colleges you can possibly have, and they can be taught wrong. They can be taught wrong. We must obey God ourselves. Why? Because according to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, we will be judged individually. I won't be judged based on what I was taught. I won't be judged based on what my teacher believes or what my parents believe. We're going to be judged individually. For we all must appear in the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, According to that he hath, whether it be good or bad. It's God who saves us. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, Paul here says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. It doesn't matter who taught you, God is the one who gives the increase. The teacher is nothing. We must obey God ourselves. Being religious and sincere will not save us. That is not enough to save us. Again, 
He said he was taught according to the perfect law of the fathers, and he was zealous toward God even as ye are this day. Can you think of anybody that was more sincere than Saul while he was persecuting the church? Galatians 1 verse 13 says, For ye have heard of my conversion in times past in the Jewish religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. And I profited in the Jewish religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Religious and sincere. Matthew seven twenty one. I'm sure you all know this passage, but this says it all. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Paul was zealous, but he was busy persecuting Christians. He was lost. He was as religious and sincere as a person could be, but he was lost. It is possible to persecute Christ while being sincere. Acts 22, verse 4, I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Acts 23, verse 1 says, I lived in all good conscience. Everything he did persecuting the church, he did it with a clear conscience because he thought he was doing what God wanted him to do. But he was wrong. Acts 9, 4, Christ said to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? To persecute Christ is to persecute the church. To persecute the church is to persecute Christ. Now here's the best example of what Saul did. When we learn we are wrong, we should admit it. How many people would not make it to heaven because of pride? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Paul didn't make any excuses. He had all these excuses that you hear people make today. He didn't make any excuses. When we see we're wrong, we must be willing to change and to do what is right. See, a man is not saved by faith only. Jesus told Saul what to do. He believed it. But was he saved at that point? He had to obey. Hebrews 11 verse 30 says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down. But if Joshua's army had not marched around and, and did exactly what God told them to do, would the walls have fell down by faith? They had to have obedience to show their faith. James chapter 2 verse 20 through 26. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought his works? And by works was faith made perfect. And the Scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, 
and it was imputed into him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified, and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. I want you to really think about this passage. This is the best comparison that we can possibly make. We're not saved by dead faith. The body plus the spirit equals a live body. Does that make sense? God puts the spirit in our body, and that's what makes us alive. The body without the Spirit is a dead body. When God takes the Spirit, when the Spirit leaves the body, it is a dead, empty vessel. Faith with works is life faith. But when you take works away from faith, it's just like the body without the Spirit. It is a dead, empty vessel. And brethren, we can't be saved by dead faith. Ye see how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Paul was not saved on the road to Damascus, as many think he was. He was told to go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee all things. He could not have been saved if he still had sin. So how was he saved? And we see that immersion is what brings one into the church. Acts 22, verse 16, Ananias here tells Paul, Why tarriest thou, arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. You cannot be in the church until your sins are gone. Where are our sins washed away? Acts 22, 16, we've already looked at. 1 Peter 3, 21, here, Peter is making the comparison of the flood and how Noah and his family were saved by water. And in verse 21, he says, The like figure, wherein to even baptism, doth also save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts 2.38, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter's preaching to him in verse 37 They're pricked in their hearts and they say, Men and brethren, what shall we do? In verse 38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We all know Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. We all know that and is a coordinating conjunction and it ties the word believeth to baptism. It takes both. But this is not the whole verse. You would think that that would be enough, but it's not. So let's make it even more clear. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not, and we've already tied baptism to belief. If you don't believe, you're not going to be baptized. He that believeth not shall be damned. Romans 6.33 Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into His death. Galatians 3.27 For as many of you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So we want to be in Christ. Why? Because that's where all spiritual blessings are. 
Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. That's where salvation is. 2 Timothy 2.10 Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. There's no condemnation in Christ. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And we become a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Baptism is how we get in Christ. So after becoming a Christian, after we devote our life to Christ at baptism, what do we do then? Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death, for to me to live and to die, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Revelations 2, verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. And you may have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Saul did not make excuses. Saul was sincerely wrong. He was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. He learned the truth and he obeyed. Think of the excuses that you've been making or why you haven't become a Christian. Do you, does anybody have any excuses better than what Saul had? He could have made all kinds of excuses. But he didn't. So here we have the best example. He learned what he needed to do. He learned he was wrong. And he obeyed the truth. Saul was an enemy of the church. He became a great friend to the church. He became the great Apostle Paul. To be a friend of Christ, you must be obedient. This morning, I hope that I've shared a little bit of the gospel with you. I hope that we know that Christ lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins, and He arose the third day. And to put on Christ, we must do the same with baptism. If you need the Lord in any way, once you come together, we stand and sing.